Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome yet again to another episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And one of the reasons why I do this podcast, certainly not to get rich, but it sometimes gives me a chance to meet some of my idols and interview them and introduce them to you. And that is the case this week and next. I am thrilled that my guest is Michael Conley. He is an author of the Bosch series, also the Lincoln Lawyer. He is the best-selling author of 38 novels. Over 85 million copies of his book have been sold worldwide. He's also the executive producer of the Bosch and Lincoln Lawyer TV series. And we get into the creation of his characters, the process. So if you are interested in writing or those very iconic characters this and next week, these are the episodes for you. So without further ado, let's jump right in. This is part one with Michael Conley on Hollywood and Levine. Well, I guess my first question is what inspired you in the first place to become a writer? Well, probably like most uh, writers, you know, I was inspired by other writing. Um, uh, I was a pretty voracious reader as a kid. And, um, you know, and I was kind of reading whatever came across my way, a lot of stuff from my mother who, who read a lot of crime fiction. And all that was well and good. And then when I read some, um, a couple of L.A. Um, writers, a, a group of L.A. writers, Joseph Wambau, uh, Raymond Chandler, and Ross McDonald, for some reason, those books stood out to me as having a level of uh attained art that I hadn't seen in other stuff that I was reading. And that really kind of inspired me and led me down the road uh, just with the simple thought that someday I'd like to try to do this. Now, those, as you said, were said in Los Angeles at the time, what you grew up in Miami, uh, North of there, the suburbs, a place called Fort Lauderdale, which is kind of big now, but it was kind of a sandy beach town when I was there in the uh-huh. uh, 50s and seventies. So you gra- gravitated towards journalism, I guess, and you were working a crime beat at various papers, correct? Yeah, when I uh, revealed my uh, secret dream of being an, uh, a writer, uh, actually being very specifically being a crime novelist, um, my parents, mostly my father, you know, came up with this idea that how to get into uh, a position to do that. Uh, to take that shot. You know, it's a long shot. When we discussed it, we knew it was a long shot. So his idea was go into journalism, you'll get close to the kind of people and things you want to write about. And then, um, you know, maybe that it will present itself. Maybe you'll get that shot. And if it doesn't happen, you'll be writing, you'll be in that world that you seem to be fascinated by. And that might not be too bad either. So as you were writing for papers were you also on the side writing short stories and unfinished novels things like that in the background 
yeah, there's a, you know, I didn't come to LA till I was 30. So I worked at newspapers in Florida out of school and uh, I was always writing at night. Um, You know, I got a couple of, they're actually finished. I got a couple of novels in a, a cardboard box somewhere in some attic or something that were my first efforts and they were completed. They were a whole story, but I, having been a voracious reader, having been a voracious reader within the genre, I kind of knew that these weren't good enough. Uh, but, but the good news was the second one was better than the first. So I didn't give up. So you go to Los Angeles. When did you start writing the first Bosch book? Pretty soon after I got here, um, I came out um, to work for the LA times in 1987 and, uh, you know, I, I don't remember the exact months because who knew if anything would come of it. I thought it could be like the third one that goes into a cardboard box. So I don't remember exactly when I started writing it. But the idea for the plot came on um, the, my very first day um, I was in L.A. and I was assigned to cover something. And that became part of the plot. Of, of the novel. So I was thinking about it right away once coming to LA. And I know I sold the book in 1990 and it was published in early 1992. So, so I got here in 87 and by 1990, I had a novel to try to sell. When you were creating the Bosch character, since there are a lot of other detectives in different novels, were you trying to think, okay, what can I do that's different about my guy what's special or interesting about Bosch well I kind of synthesized everything I had learned from reading of course and also a lot of interviews with people like Raymond Chandler's Simple Art of Murder um Ross McDonald uh, wrote about writing and um these things uh, you know helped me a lot but I really was drawn to this by the private eye school Ross McDonald Raymond Chandler. I know Wombau wrote about cops and I loved his stuff, but I really loved the idea of this out, this loner outside of the system, looking in at the system, kind of like what a reporter does. And so I always thought I'm positioning myself to write a crime novel uh, that would probably be about a, either an, uh, uh, a private eye or some kind of amateur detective. Uh, but then I, I came to, it dawned on me, I have a press pass that gets me into one of the most innovative and controversial police departments in the world. And why am I not using that in to inform whatever I do in fiction? And so I came to LA and I had a real sea change in where I thought I was going and said, okay, I'm going to use what I I have. I have inside access to the LAPD. So I'm going to make it an LAPD detective. Um, who will feel like a lone wolf, a guy who's kind of feeling like he's outside looking in. And I gave the character different attributes that would reinforce that. But, you know, the thing I thought to get back this long way of getting back to your question, what I had, what I thought separated my guy or separated me as as a writer was that in and the authenticity I could bring to the book. Um, I had this kind of image in my head of, a faceless reader, just just a, a reader kind of nodding their head when they would read my books, nodding, knowing like this guy knows what he's talking about. That's that. And that really informed uh, the first Harry Bosch book.
How much of you is in Harry Bosch? Well, back then, almost nothing. Um, you know, I used to say that the only thing we have in common is that we're both left-handed. And that wasn't me trying to connect with Harry. I was <clears throat> I was doing little things that uh, may be subliminal to the reader, but I was doing little things to reinforce that he was an outsider. You know, it's he's left-handed in a right-handed world. He smokes, not because I have ever smoked. I'm an anti-smoker, but you have to go outside to smoke. So I did all these little things that, to kind of brand him in big and small ways as an outsider. And also the second part of that answer is that when I was writing that book, I had never been published and I had two failed attempts um, in a box. And so I didn't know if this third time would be the charm or it would just be another thing destined for the box. So I wanted to make sure I was interested for the year or whatever it would take me to write it. So I wrote very particularly about someone completely opposite from me. You know, Bosch is an orphan. Uh, he has difficulties with bosses and with romance and all these things that were not part of my life. You know, I'm from a big family, a close knit family. I've been married a long time, um, even a long time back in 87 when, uh, when I moved out here. Um, and so all that, um, you know, separated me from Bosch, but then I got lucky and the book got published well and it won some awards and they wanted another, you know, another contract. And I started thinking about who else can I write about? And he said, no, no, we want, we want more Harry Bosch. And so this plan to keep him separate from me is now over the years, you just can't keep doing that. So you keep sharing stuff with them. And most notably about 10 years. And, you know, I've been publishing books about Bosch for 32 years now. So, but about 10 years into it, I get, he found out he was uh, the father of a five-year-old daughter. And at that point I had a five-year-old daughter. And so that was a big moment where I was sharing um, my life with Harry Bosch and, you know, fatherhood, you know, changes your view of the world. And that's what was getting into Harry Bosch because it was happening to me. Did you picture anybody specific when you were uh, writing the character? When I write plays or pilots or movies, I will try to envision an actor, even if I can't get him or somebody that I know. So it just helps me visualize the character and hear his voice. Did you have anyone specific in mind? No, not really. I mean, I mean, it's funny. Um, I write like I read and a lot of people, uh, their process of reading does what you just said. They'll, they'll start um, reading about a character and they'll ascribe that character to their dad or someone famous, but just a, a phys physical visual um, record, if you will. Um, I just like building from whole cloth and imagining what people look like. So I I didn't ascribe Harry Bosch to anyone out there in the world. I had an image of him. And and as I said before, I got lucky. And so I'm writing many, many books about Harry Bosch. And then I have I put this on the record before and he's reached out to me. It's kind of weird. But during the OJ Simpson trial, the prosecutors brought in a DNA expert. DNA was so new back then. They had to get a, a prosecutor from Alameda County up in the Bay Area because he was the state's expert on DNA. And they brought him in. And his name is Rockney Harmon. And when 
I was watching the OJ trial and this guy came on to, uh, uh, you know, uh, ask questions of a witness. I was like, holy crap. That's, that is Harry Botch. That's the guy I've been in <laughs> imagining right down through the salt and pepper mustache. And I couldn't believe it. And the guy looks so much like the guy I had been carrying around in my head who I just kind of built from, from my own, um, uh, thoughts. Um, so it was a pretty wild, like seeing a, your doppelganger or something. And I said that a couple of times in interviews and, um, uh, Rockney Harmon's retired now, but he is still a DNA expert that testifies in trials and stuff. And he's reached out to me a couple of times. Um, cause other people have told him, Hey, you're Harry Bosch. Well, you know, Titus Welliver did a great job in the TV version but it wasn't who I pictured. I tell you who I pictured is kind of weird because of the mustache and the curly hair and everything. I sort of pictured a buff Alex Trebek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I can kind of see that. Um, that's that's you should uh, Google Rockney Harmon's after we're done and see if he kind of he kind of looks like Alex Trebek. So I think you're on to something. Tell me about selling the book. How did that actually happen? Well, it's the world's so different now. This was before there were uh, the, the internet was, you know, publicly accessible, um, and so everything was done by mail. Uh, you know, you go to the library, and there's books called I think it's called the Writers Market that lists agents, and and you know, so you're kind of really groping around in the dark, and and it's such a long waiting game, you know. So I had a couple things going for me. I worked at the L.A. Times, and I covered crime. And I covered the LAPD, which was, you know, pretty famous police department. So I, I, I took a list. I made a list of crime novelists whose work I really loved and, and in many ways had inspired me. And these were all actively writing authors. And, you know, it was like a, being a little bit of a detective or something. All I did was like, look at the, their copyright page and get their publisher's name. I'd call that publisher and I'd say, can I speak to Lawrence Block's editor? And I would get transferred not to his editor, uh, but to the assistant editor. Mm-hmm. And I'd just say, I, I need to contact Lawrence Block's agent. Can you tell me who it is? And that's how I came up with a list of agents. I came up with a list of 10 agents and I sent them all pretty much the same letter called a query letter just uh extolling my my skills as a writer <laughs> and my experience and i and this was a true that my novel was based on a true crime that i covered that was pretty fascinating and that wasn't an exaggeration um and then you sit back and wait and like months go by and I, of those 10 i never heard from half and then uh, five or six of them said um i'll read anywhere from 50 pages to 100 and then you send them out and then um, you get a, then it gets down to like, I think two or three that said, I'll read the whole book now, but only if I'm the only one reading it, I have to work exclusively or it's not worth my time. Hmm. Or, and of course I said, of course, you're the only one who has it, but I sent it to everybody. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it became a question of the first one who would respond. I'm out in LA, you know, I have no idea how, the publishing and agenting world really works. So I'm just hoping somebody would um, respond and say, I'll, I'll uh, represent you. And that, and the first guy who called me and he called me on a Saturday 
because he had, I think everyone does that thing where he says, I only read it exclusively, but they know it's in competition. And he had missed out on a writer by uh, waiting and not calling him over a weekend. So he said, I learned my lesson. So I'm calling you on a Saturday to say, I want to represent you. And if I had ranked the 10 agents that I hope to get, this guy was by far number one because he was uh, he represented my favorite author at that time. Um, and uh, so I ended up with my first choice as an agent. And but that process took over a year, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then he he sold it pretty quickly. He sold it um, probably within three months. Um, and he's and it, which is still a slow process because he only showed it to three people and it took three months to get a yes from one of them. Three, three Once you got a yes, uh, did you work with an editor and make revisions? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and I came from the uh, uh, hard scrabble um, halls of journalism where editing is not a fine art and, and is not gentle. And so I was kind of blown away by um, my editor, like saying, do you think this might be better or, or do, you know, they would not change anything without your approval or, or you doing it yourself at their suggestion, which was not my experience in, in, in the newspaper business where sometimes in the morning you'd pick up the paper and read your story and you wouldn't even recognize it because it had been so overwritten during the, the night. Um, and so, yeah, no. And, and, you know, I, I published 37 coming up on, I think 38 books and every one of them's gotten better in the editing process. Um, so it's a, it's a system or a process that I really trust. When I sold my first book, my editor called me, Zette Villard, and he called me and he said, uh, so I have some thoughts that I'd like to run by you. And I said, okay, how many of these notes do I have to do? And he said, oh, you're from television where <laughs> they force you to do things. He said, uh, no, these are suggestions. If you don't want to touch it, I will print your book as is. I said, oh, in that case, send me your suggestions. And I like made all of his changes and even more. But, you know, like I said, I was used to television where they're not suggestions, they're demands. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I have that experience too. When I began uh, and my partner and I sold an assignment and I had a daytime job, I was still insecure enough that I kept my daytime job until we sold our third script. Same with you, right? You kept your job at the Times for what, your first three or four books? Yeah, basically four, but I took a hiatus of six months in there. And uh, and that really did me in. Um, I kept my job not for financial reasons, uh, although, you know, you never know. There's something mystical, as you know, about writing. And so if you kind of, if you're not sure where this comes from, that enables you to sit down over nine months and write a script or a book or whatever, you can, you got to believe it can also just suddenly go away. So there's always that insecurity, but I was keeping my job because of my access. That thing we I already talked about, like, you know, I, I went into police stations every day of the week and I talked to detectives and here I am writing fiction about a detective. Like what, what 
there can't be a better setup. But um, my concern was, am I producing the best writing possible or the best books possible when my focus as a writer is split every single day? So I, after um, my third book, I asked for a six month leave and um, or sabbatical, whatever you want to call it. And they granted that, but they said, don't screw us over. Um, if you're not coming back, let me know so I can find a replacement. I don't want you to, in six months, call me up and say, I'm not coming back. Um, and so I got kind of, that kind of weighed on me. But during that six months, I could see that my writing on the fourth book had dramatically improved because it was the only thing swishing around in my brain. It was this book, not what the LAPD was doing or not what the competition was doing. Back then, LAPD was pretty competitive and there were three newspapers. And um, and so that was always something weighing on you. Are you going to pick up the competition's paper in the morning and see you've been scooped or you've been beaten um, on the police beat? And that's a constant stressor in your life. And so for the six months when I didn't have any of that weighing on me and all I was doing was writing a Harry Bosch book, I could see it by the day, almost by the page that I was writing better. And I knew I, I had to give up my access. Um, so I dutifully went back and, and stayed another six months and gave them plenty of time to um, find my replacement. Did people in the LAPD treat you differently once you became a best-selling author? Um, were they yeah. afraid to tell you things because they were afraid they were going to show up in books? Um, not really, but, you know, I didn't become a best-selling author till um, a few years after I quit. But what I didn't realize and quickly came to know is that that access I had, it was it was flawed. Um, because I was a newspaper reporter and people wouldn't ultimately tell me things because they thought it could end up in a newspaper. When you're writing fiction, there's less of a concern. Yeah, it might end up in a book, but interesting. Uh, so interesting. my access was actually better. My access, particularly to homicide cops um, who are, you know, kind of a breed of, uh, off by themselves within uh, an, an LAPD bureaucracy. And that's that's who I was interested in, both as a reporter and as um, a novelist. And so I I went from having very kind of superficial connections to sources to to people becoming very close friends and opening up what it's like to do that job. Not the procedure. The procedure is window dressing. It's really what it's like to do that on the inside. And um, and so my access was. I, I kind of like was like, oh, I could have had a V8 type of moment hitting my head saying, I spent at least two years too long working that double shift where I was a reporter by day or sometimes by night and a, and an author or writer um, the other time. And uh, I shouldn't have done that. Certainly one of your characters is Los Angeles. To be honest, that's why I started reading you, because I grew up in Los Angeles and love this town. And it's like, oh, OK, here's another L.A. based book. And then I got sucked in and actually loved the book. But uh, 
You should be getting free donuts at Bob's every time you go there for the plugs. Same with Dupar's and Musso and Frank's and some other locations. Well, some of those places really take good care of me and um, I can't complain. But it's interesting when you're an author, people might know your name, but they don't know your face. So I I travel pretty anonymously through this city and... uh, you know, the TV show Bosch really kind of connected me with places like I, the people in Moose and Franks never really knew who I was till we started filming the show in there. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I think we've taken good care of them and they take great care of us when we, when we want to film in there. In 1996, you branched out and you wrote a book that did not involve Bosch, the poet. And then in 1997, blood work, featuring FBI profiler Terry McCallum, and that became a movie. Now, how bizarre was that to see Clint Eastwood <laughs> starring in a movie as one of your characters? Um, it was a weird, not weird, but I mean, it was a, an amazing kind of full circle thing because I'm easily as, uh, inspired, you know, we talked about the three authors that I like, but I was so inspired by film. And even TV. Um, my father loved cop movies. My mother didn't. So she wouldn't go and he would take me. So, you know, the movie Bullet had a huge impression on me. And the Dirty Harry movies had a big impression on me. And so to have Dirty Harry end up playing a character that in some ways was inspired by him was an interesting circle to close. The real. Yeah. <laughs> been uh my Hollywood story is pretty pretty amazing, and um, as, that's a good word for it. It's surreal. There you go, part one of my two-part interview with Michael Conley. Next week, we get more into the process. We deal with Lincoln Lawyer, also the transition into television. Lots and lots of good stuff. Please come back for that. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, I will write you back. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Also, if you have any questions, I will uh, compile enough of them to do a whole episode of Friday Questions. And so, again, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com should you have a query. And uh, what else? Follow me on Instagram. See some of my cartoons. And more importantly, come on back next week for part two with Michael Conley right here on Hollywood and Levine.